Hi everyone. If you like what you've been hearing, please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hegelbon. That's H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. The Patreon's really the lifeblood of the podcast. It lets me dedicate the time that I need to play the games, to talk to our guests, to really set everything up and, and make everything as sharp as it is. Um, without it, uh, no cartridge really wouldn't exist the way it does today. If you don't like monthly pledges, I totally get it. Uh, there's also paypal.me backslash Hagelbon, and we can try and figure something out there. Or you can email me at nocartridgeaudio at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I will try and answer your emails as quickly as I can. Thanks so much for your support, and enjoy the show. Audio. My name is Trevor Strunk, Hagelbont on Twitter, and I am here with actually two guests. Uh, one, a, a recurring guest. Uh, I'm here with Liv, uh, who you all should know from, from No Cartridge After Dark after last week's free episode. Uh, or not last week, but many weeks ago at this point. It's free episode. <laughs> and um, and also just because you listen to No Cartridge After Dark. Um, Liv, welcome. Thank you. Hello. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have you here. It's very <laughs> it's very nice to have you on the main podcast. This is this is a this is a treat. Um, and also, it's, it's especially a treat for you. <laughs> um, it, that's what I meant. It's not a treat for me. It's a treat for you, and you should be you should be grateful. Um, and we have with us, um, a, a, I would say, like, and actually, this is a question that I'm going to ask you really early on because you promised you you sort of made the very bad choice of saying you would explain it to me. Um, the difference between a dev and a designer and all the various things that go on in a game studio, but you've kind of done a lot of them. Uh, Nathaniel Chapman, uh, uh, welcome to the show. We are really happy to have you. And uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be exciting to ask about all of your various experiences in the world of uh, games making. Uh, hi, welcome. Uh, I'm super excited to come on a long time, long time first time. <laughs> so, yeah, that's exciting to me. That's great. Um, I, I, I like I basically uh, I think like live uh, and that that sounds dramatic, but it's probably true. Like I, I survive off of uh, the 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 rumors that I hear from people who uh, work at studios who are like, oh, yeah, people at the studio listen to your podcast. And I say, oh, can I talk to any of them? And they say, oh, we're all under NDAs. We can talk to no one. So they're like these <laughs> yeah. these, these ghosts who listen to my podcast like uh uh, I I I am grateful for them, and so like whenever I get to meet one, I'm just like, wow, they, they do exist. You're like a, uh, you're like ET to me. I think, I mean, it, it's really an advantage to being if you're if you're like left of you know, super lit nor, normie lib culture. <laughs> yeah. There's very little in the gaming world that you can really that's really <laughs> seriously about games and uh, has a left perspective. So. It's super welcome to have uh, have you guys doing something that is from that perspective and actually seriously talking about games as well. So thank you. Yeah, no, it's um, it's 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 been weird to see a couple of things crop up um, with uh, I know Means TV. We talked to them a little while back, and 
and they have they had a they have a thing now um, like a video series now and uh, Hassan Piker has been doing stuff. They're they're out there, but it's like it took so long for anyone else to be doing it. It was like very very lonely for a while. Yeah, this I mean is, this is weird. And and it's so over. I mean the ratio of horrific reactionary gaming content to yes. anything with a decent perspective <laughs> is so bad. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, no, that's that's great, and thank you so much. Um, so I am. Um, I have a, an initial question, and it's going to be the one that I hinted at, and then uh, I figure, Liv, do you want to do you want to trade questions back and forth? Uh, yeah, that sounds okay. good to me. Sounds great, because uh, I want to do it that that way because I think I have a lot of questions, and I know you have a lot of questions, and I would just uh, I, I don't want to miss any of yours because they're always super smart. So, um, uh, Nathaniel, my first question is, uh, what is the difference between a game dev and a game designer? And uh, the various, like, similar sounding, but, um, you know, consistently important and overlooked jobs at a game studio. So this this might, the terms might be different based on who you ask and what part of the world they're in, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, a game dev, in, as I've heard it used, is typically refers to anyone who works in the industry. Um, okay. And actually there's been some debate over how wide that should be, how inclusive that should be. Um, one thing that a lot of people, uh, that has traditionally the idea that, or the being a game dev has been restricted from roles like QA and marketing and mm. community management. Um, and there's sort of like an insular setting that like if you didn't literally put things into the game, you're not a game dev. Um, but I don't really buy into that. I really think that essentially anyone who applies labor to putting games out there for people to play is basically a game dev. Okay. Um, then a designer um, is al- <laughs> is unfortunately not that much more defined. It's also pretty vague. <laughs> um, there's uh, So the jobs I've done um, are level design, which is essentially building the building rough blockouts of the flow through flow the players take through levels in a game. Um, In some places, they also handle, like, the aesthetic presentation of levels, but that is um, also, in in my experience, has fallen to environment artists. Um, And then system designers essentially design mechanics and encounters and um, more kind of uh, nuts and bolts elements of the games, I guess, like how how the rules interact with each other. Um, And then narrative designers design the story. Um, and then depending on the size of the studio and the size of the team, some of those roles will be merged. You know, oftentimes narrative designers and level designers are the same people. So. So, uh, and as a follow-up, how much of that, like, how much of that sort of crosses over? Like, how many, like, I, I would imagine at smaller studios, it's it's much more consistent that this would happen, where um, you know, you you say, oh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm this particular I, I do level design, but then someone's gonna you're gonna say like, but also I um, I do uh, dabble in um, in like aesthetic presentations of levels as well when I'm needed. Like, how often do the jobs kind of like blur together? They they very frequently blur together in the design uh, within the sort of realm of design. So like a system designer might make content um, on WoW. We uh, I did encounter design, which is basically like bosses and dungeons and things like that. Okay. And that's sort of a hybrid in between those two spaces of designing content and designing systems. Um, between disciplines, oftentimes it it's much rarer that people move like 
a person will do design and art on a project, especially on in a professional setting. Oftentimes, because like the software that you use is completely different. Like um, an artist will make things in 3D Studio Max um, or Maya, and then I'll work in uh, whatever proprietary editor or like Unreal editor or whatever, depending on the game, whatever they use. Right. Um, and then a programmer will work in Visual Studio. So like, there's not a lot of transferable skills between those three. There's there's like fundamental knowledge that's transferable, but a lot of like this game specific knowledge doesn't. You have a totally different workflow if you're an artist versus a designer. Okay, that makes sense. Um, great, thank you. No problem. Live, you're up. Well, piggybacking off of just talking about uh, instance and encounter design. Um, Anyone who's really heard me talk on No Cartridge for too, too long knows that I uh, am a longtime World of Warcraft player. Not currently, but just uh, historically. And I wanted to ask um, a question specific to your work on World of Warcraft because you worked on it for a long time. Um, From Mist of Pandaria through Battle for Azeroth, working on questing and Mist and then encounter design from then on, correct? Yeah, correct. Um, so what I was curious about is, uh, it seems like, well, it doesn't seem like anything to me. I don't know. That's why I'm asking you, um, that designing raid encounters that sometimes you have, um, characters that you know, you're going to have to design, uh, an encounter for, like, you know, that there's going to be an Arthas fight at the end of Wrath of the Lich King. And so then you have to find... Um, that you're designing mechanics for Arthas. But then it seems like in some raids, maybe you know that you want to have a, a healing heavy boss. And so then I, what, wondering what the process is, like if mechanics sometimes come first, if art always comes first, or like the character, or I'm not going to ask you to go over everything. It seems like it could go either way for a lot of things. Um, just yeah, a, think, a, an instance that you're proud of and like what the design process was like for that. I think it really, um, I think as you, as you hinted at, it really is both. It, it really depends on um, when there is a really strong narrative fantasy behind a boss. So Stepping back from specifics about WoW, I think sort of just philosophically about designing challenges for players, um, especially in like a narrative, a game with narrative like WoW. From my point of view, a lot of it is about kind of two goals. One is allowing the mechanics to sort of enact the story that the player wants to feel. Like when you fight, let's say Arthas, you want to feel like you're going up against this unstoppable force. You want to you expect to see things that you've seen in his you know, and cutscenes that he's been in and other games. You, you, and for any boss design, you really have this sort of the weight of narrative that you need to enact. The boss needs to enact their narrative in the f- encounter if it wants to, if it's going to be successful as a narrative resolution to of the character arc. Because oftentimes that's the end of the character's arc, right? You fight them, mm-hmm. you defeat them. That's so it needs to really be like this mechanical enactment of who that character is. Uh, on the other hand, like sometimes a boss really is just mechanically driven. Um, and I think like, um, as an example, uh, in wow, um, like, uh, let me think like, Oh, uh, actually this isn't an encounter I worked on at all. It's before I even got there. Lothab, which is literally mm-hmm. heel backwards was mm-hmm. an encounter <laughs> literally designed around the idea of what if, you could only heal a very limited amount in an encounter. 
and that is sort of the kernel of the idea, and then every ability is built out from that kernel. Um, and I think they're just different approaches, um, and they're both valid, especially in a game like WoW, where you need so much, like, there's a lot of content that needs to get made in a game like mm -hmm. WoW, and not every, you know, some bosses are going to be me mechanically driven, and some are going to be very important to the story, and you can't have, you know, if you, if you have, like, 50 characters in a raid that are all important to the story, they all kind of start to lose their identity, so... Um, I think that that mix is super important. Is there a, a particular instance that you're proud of that you've worked on? Um, yeah, so I mean, I uh, my very first boss I made is actually one of my favorites. Um, I worked on Siegecraft or Blackfuse in um, uh, Siege of Orgrimmar, mm -hmm. um, which is it was it basically the idea behind it was a uh, it's a goblin who's manufacturing all the weapons for the ar the army that you're fighting against. Um, and so what, what I got to play with was basically the idea of um, uh, what, what, is an engineer, what does a fight with an engineer look like? Oh, um, cool. So something that was kind of fun was like uh, there's actually these conveyor belts in the room. And on one side, he's bringing along kind of the, the un, unassembled pieces for weapons. And uh, I actually, there's like little pipes you jump in to jump onto the conveyor belts and you know, blow up the pieces before they get assembled into weapons. And the ones that get assembled into weapons get fired against the raid. So that was kind of a really cool fantasy to play with. Um, I also got to make, like, Mario pipes, which is really cool. <laughs> um, and I like to do, like, little um, little homages. I actually did these, like, uh, when, I, when I saw the conveyor belts, it made me think of Metal Man stage from Mega Man 2. Nice. And so he there's these giant, like, drill missiles I did because in, in the Metal Man stage, there, there's these, like, weird little drills that come out of conveyor belts. It's a really weird. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a very like abstract level, but, uh, if, if anyone's played the metal man stage, they'll know how good it was though. Yes. I it's mean, very good. <laughs> it's classic. It's a perfect uh, stage. Yes. Um, I'll, I'll die on that hill. Yeah. Um, but go on. Sorry. No, no, it's, it's fine. So anyways, yeah. So that was just a really, a really cool experience. Um, and it's, it's really wild being a raid designer too, because, the other half of that experience is watching groups go through it, mm -hmm. um, oftentimes in real time, um, which is just like, it's, uh, you get a little bit actually on the single player side. That's one of the things that's so useful about streaming for developers um, is actually like, it's, it's like real time feedback. Um, back when I was working on single player games, Twitch TV wasn't really a thing um, like pre 2012. And you, you, in order to like watch someone play your game, you had to schedule a focus test, and like they might not, you have no idea if they would ever even be interested in your game. Um, but yeah, it was really cool actually getting to watch people play through and like solve the puzzles in real time uh, as a developer on the encounter. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah. it was it was wild to me uh, watching. I, I don't remember if it was Legion or Battle for Azeroth whenever Method started live streaming their raids. Because yeah. whenever I was like hardcore raiding was uh, like tier 11. Um, so like early Cataclysm. And everyone was so secretive about like the beginnings of each raid tier. Like you, they wouldn't even upload their, their logs, their parses or anything. So like to see like a raid live streaming their stuff and like using their strats uh, to try to get world first kills was... It was it's, crazy, and people it, were so into it. It was probably the most people I've really seen watching uh, WoW live on Twitch. Yeah, it's it's super cool. Um, I actually, I mean, I think 
I was personally and a lot of the people on the encounter team were really excited to see like that was a thing that we were waiting for. <laughs> we really really because like we knew that we knew it was fun to watch just because we could watch it internally um, for tuning reasons and all that stuff. But then getting the world to be able to see it is really cool. That's neat. I mean, it seems like it seems to me that, um, and I mean, we can actually. It's actually kind of a. I'll want to come back to this when we talk about because um, we. I, I imagine we will talk about labor later on. Um, but uh, it's cool to me thinking about the um, the like the um, I'm trying to think of how to say this the the quality of of streaming that like really obviously like now we think of streaming particularly with FPS or MOBAs. Um, but like even with MOBAs, right? Like there's there's a very sort of like RTSE kind of quality to them in watching them go, and, and in a lot of ways, like you get a feel for like okay, this this could be it's complex in the same way. And I'm I'm like a Liv will tell you I, I know nothing about WoW. I'm very bad at it. Um, <laughs> I I respect it. I think it's very cool. Um, I just was a square in college and didn't get into it, and that was like that was my window, and I just missed my window. Um, but uh, I think like there's something very, very streamable about raids, right? With like, because they are puzzles, because they are puzzles that you have to work out with like a group of people because like there is a constant, uh, um, uh, refinement of those puzzles. Like it's, it's such a very particularly good, uh, Twitch, uh, or, or streaming, uh, option. Like that must've like, it's weird to me. So a, it's weird to me that WoW hasn't taken off more as a as a streaming thing. Um, and B, that must have just been like when you knew that was going to happen. That must have been so exciting to like just think like, oh, this is like built for us. Yeah. It, no. It's it's very cool. To, it was very cool to see, um, especially once the the big groups started deciding to uh, stream their progression attempts. Um, oh, that's and cool. actually, actually, something else that's neat. Uh, Final Fantasy XIV, which is my latest addiction, um, they did. They essentially have their like super ultra difficult raid tier um, called. Um, they're called the Ultimate Raids, and um, their designer talked about uh, at their last fan fest. He did a. They have sort of design presentations they do, and he talked about how that fight was designed for streaming. Um, oh, cool. Wow. Yeah. So the, it had a really neat mechanic where. Um, so the, the the sort of the the um, the idea of the ultimate fights is that they are remakes of classic encounters at, at, done to like the nth degree. They're just the craziest version of classic encounters. So it's these three fights, um, Titan, Garuda, and Ifrit, that are like classic Final Fantasy fights, and they were in the very first version of, well, the very first good version of 14. <laughs> um, and if you play them the sort of like the correct way, you get to the end of the encounter and you lose. Um, and what you have to figure out, basically there's a, there's a situation that's just like an instant death and you can't avoid it. And what the players started figuring out was if you m- messed up mechanics in very specific ways that made the fight really hard, it actually like enabled you to get past, get further into the fight. And that was an intentional design to sort of like create a, a sense of tension on the part of the players and the viewers trying to figure out what's the puzzle here. like. There's That's something cool. here that we don't get. There's something here that we're not getting and allowing people uh, and letting the audience participate in that was something that they saw as like, this will make the fight more streamable and that will make it more exciting to watch. That's very cool. I like that a lot. Um, yeah, like it's, it's, 
it's funny because like I never think of MOBAs. Maybe this is a lack of imagination on my part. I mean, it's certainly possible, but I never think of, not MOBAs, uh, MMOs as like as stream destinations. But as Liv has pointed out to me many times, like there are very serious WoW streamers, and there seem to be very serious FF14 streamers. So maybe it's me. Maybe I don't understand. <laughs> I think a lot of the the WoW streamers, it tends to be more PvP and more like arena, like twos, threes. Um, I think that WoW also has. Um, it's. I think it's hard to parse if you are not familiar with the different classes and um, like the raid makeup. Whereas, like, I could watch someone play Dota and I could, you know, I could watch someone stream that and I would understand what was going on on the screen, even though I don't have, um, you know, I don't know all of the heroes' moves or anything like that. Mm. I think that's absolutely. Um... Me personally, I, I agree, especially with respect to WoW PvP. I think there's something about PvE that, like, people get fighting a boss. And especially, um, one of the nice things about PV, about streamed PvE content is that you're repeating, especially if it's really hard, you're repeating the same boss over and over again. It's almost like watching a speedrunner. And you start to get okay. that. You start to get that understanding of the game mechanics on a deeper level. Like, the same way when you watch a speedrunner, like you start to understand what they're doing and start to under dig into the mechanics. Or like watching a fighting game. Like you, you watch a fighting game and you start to learn like the intricacies of how the characters work together. And I think that's why PvE is so much more watchable in, in WoW and in... Because, yeah, like, like you were saying, the, uh, the Method stream, their World First stream was like one of the highest viewer counts for WoW, I think, ever. Um, and wow. that... Yeah, I, it, I mean, it's, it's not like it's... It sounds really not fun to watch, which is you're watching a group pull do like fight a boss 300 times in a row, but it has a, it has a similar thing of watching a speedrunner do attempts where it's a, a lot of it's a learning process and you're learning alongside the people doing the raid and like people in the chat are giving suggestions on how to handle mechanics and a lot of them are really dumb but it's still funny and <laughs> and so yeah it's I, I think there that aspect of it really is is much more watchable at least for me I have a, then again, I also have a hard time watching Dota so I I don't know. <laughs> I think that the fact that you have to only watch one player's perspective at a, as, at a yeah. time. Um, and I, yeah, I think some people have difficulty like watching something like Overwatch as well, where you're just watching one player at a time. So if that, you don't know what the heroes can do, then, you know, like you're not seeing people absolutely. working together, like how the whole rhythm of it goes. Yeah, for sure. So I want to ask you a little bit about uh I mean, I'm going to jump. I, I, you know, I've thought a lot about this. Uh, I'll, I'll give I'll give the listeners some some insight into what I do before podcasts, which uh, may seem like nothing uh, because the guests are the stars. But uh, I try to do something, <laughs> and the main thing I do is try and think about like what what uh, how I'm going to like go through the the person's like expertise or timeline or whatever, and, and, and comment on it. And I was like. I was tempted to do, like, chronologically, like, okay, so you started here, and, like, tell us about this, tell us about that, because I have questions about, like, every step of your career, basically, but the one question that I have, like, uh, the one question that really struck out, struck me as important was the one that is, like, most current, um, so I'm just gonna ask you now, like, so you, you have left, uh, Blizzard, um, and you are currently working in a cooperative, am I correct? Well, Games I'm- co-op? I'm working to start a cooperative. I have working, not okay, okay, yeah. yet. I don't yet have all of the people to form the co-op yet, but that is what I would like to do next. Okay, cool. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm interested. So, here's what I here's what I want to know about about that. Uh, what in your mind 
counts as a games co-op? Like, what is that? What is that labor structure? What does that look like to you? And then also, um, what is like, what appeals to you about that? What What do you think is able to be done there? I mean, you don't have to get like specific about you know what was not possible in the companies you were at before. I'm not asking necessarily like. You can get into it if you want, but I'm not necessarily asking for a Jeremiah on the uh, current games industry unless you really want to give it. Uh, (laughs) What do you think? What do you think like the co-op system allows you to do as a dev that you wouldn't have in the current system? So I think stepping back from the Jeremiah against the game industry, I actually think this is a a capitalism problem. It's not really a game industry problem. I would would agree with that. That seems uh, right to me. So... What I mean, what I would define as a co-op developer um, is uh, there's you know there's there's like co-op co-op principles and things like that. But f- stepping away from all of the like fine fine details, really what it is is worker ownership of um, both the creative content of what they're working on and the financial sort of the financial ownership. So uh, equal worker ownership of you know the IP the uh, equal owner, equal worker access to royalties um, and equal worker creative ownership. So things like, you know, being able to make decisions through consensus rather than through, you know, fiat. Mm-hmm. Um, or or if, if you have a structure where, because I know that there's concern, a lot of concerns about design by committee um, in more horizontal structures. I mean, I, and I can understand that. But... A, what a co-op can do is, for instance, elect people into those positions of uh, power. So if a person does have, you know, sort of that auteur role, that can be a an elected role, and that can be a role that if the workers decide this person isn't doing a good job, the workers can choose to replace them or make them a standard contributor and not have them be a director anymore. So that's mm-hmm. those two those two facets are what for me define. Uh, cooperative, so worker ownership and worker control. Okay, makes sense. Um, and so, what do you think? What do you think that allows? Uh, I mean, obviously, so like, I, I say this not to sort of become like Elon Musky and, and imagine that the only way you can think of a uh, a social thing is by way of like, what innovation will it bring you? Like, how are you disrupting the market? Um, what I'm concerned about more is like. You know, obviously, it provides better justice, better lives, better fairness. Uh, right. It is, it is a, you know, it is an, it is a moral and economic good. Um, yes. Better, the moral part is more important than the economic part, uh, but they go hand in hand in hand as far as this goes, um, or hand in glove, I guess is the better way of saying it. Um, but is there anything that you see in the co-op system that gives an advantage to design over, say? Um, the the traditional system, or is it just is it simply and it, this would be fine, but is it simply just a, a a justice thing? I think I mean I think the justice ties into the creative uh, the justice and creative control ties into that. I think mm-hmm. um, it, so. I don't think that so for instance like I'll, I'll use Undertale as an example. I think Undertale is a brilliant game. I think it's super creative and um, it's made by a you know mostly by Toby Fox and then also a couple other people um, and that is a really good structure for a super small team um, and they and, and again it's small independent creators can do these kinds of wildly creative things uh, but if if the I think when in a structure where people are have codified 
rights to vote for things and sort of democratic control of the content of the games, you might see a little bit more um, experimental ideas coming from larger teams. Hmm. Um, because I think the... In order to become a director at a large, like at a AAA studio, you you have to realize that the company's purpose is to kind of to make games for everyone, um, and when you make the creative decisions, you're you're always thinking about what the company's financial interest is going to be. I mean, that just right. has to that has to be how you operate in a company. It, it's even if you're not directly thinking about it, the the you know, the fact that the company exists to make money for shareholders is going to make you think about it eventually. Um, (laughs) And so I think that is, that is one thing that it allows that it, I think, I think there's some potential for more creative sort of more exploration of ideas or maybe themes, uh, characters like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of kind of memes that go through uh, the, the sort of like marketing of games, like, women, female characters don't sell or people of color, you know, having main characters that are, and that's changed somewhat, but, you know, and and it can also go to mechanics. Like there was a while, you know, five years ago where like turn-based games don't sell. That was a, Mm. that was a meme that would go around. And I think when you have worker and those kinds of things are often decided by a very small group of people within a company. Um, and when the control, when that power is sort of, Devolve more democratically to all of the workers. I think that a good idea has more opportunity to thrive um, before being, you know, sort of killed early by, um, <laughs> you know, essentially corporate concerns. That makes sense. Um, yeah, no, I mean that's like, uh, yeah, no, actually, that's a, that's a very good answer. I guess like it's something that I've thought about when I talk to because um, the only the other person I know who has a. Uh, who's working uh, on starting a co-op is, is Scott Benson. And like, whenever I talk to Scott about his co-op, it, what strikes me about it is like, he'll, he'll describe it and it sounds really cool. And I can never quite put my finger on like why outside of the obvious, like, you know, better, uh, (laughs) like uh, the obvious better parts, let's say that, um, like what, what it is about it that strikes me as so good. And like, that's helpful. Cause like, I think, part of not being on the like on the ground floor of this stuff it, and like just enjoying it from a critic and a, and a, you know a, a consumer perspective is it's very hard to uh, it's very hard to know like what about the games industry is um, is real I guess I guess yeah. for lack of a better word I, I think one thing Scott actually I, I I might be mistaken but I think Scott mentioned this uh, when he was starting his co-op is that it's it's a way to also morally scale. Like, mm. like I don't think that Scott couldn't have made Night in the Woods. Or sorry, I don't think that, like, clearly he made Night in the Woods not as a co-op. But <laughs> if you want to make something larger than Night in the Woods, you're going to have to hire people. Right. And if you're hiring people, you're setting up a relationship where you're the boss and they're the employee. And if you don't have, and if that doesn't feel moral to you, if that doesn't feel like the right way to organize a studio, then a co-op is the, really the only way to grow that you that you can allows you to maintain that um, what you feel is like like is the correct moral way to run a game company. Right. Yeah. No, that's very helpful. Liv, you're on. 
<laughs> well, I'm going to say that every time because it's funny to me now. So I'm I sorry. I do have another, uh, another question about WoW, but while we're on the topic of labor, I would like to talk about the uh, Game Workers Union and um, if you can talk a little bit about your role in that. Yeah, so I'm the, chapters co- uh, the chapter coordinator for Game Workers Unite Orange County. So we are not a labor union, but we are a um, group that is working to try to help um, game developers organize. Mm. Um, so there's reasons why, one being that we're an international organization and for complex legal reasons, uh, international organizations have a hard time, like can't be function, like can't work directly as a union. Um, there, though there actually have been individual chapters of Game Workers Unite. So Game Workers Unite UK actually became an official union in the UK. Hmm. Um, so basically, cool. a chapter coordinator, I don't, it's not really a super fancy title or anything. I just run meetings and I'm, you know, help people to get the resources they need. Um, we've been doing organizer training, which um, anyone who's in this sort of traditional labor movement will know exactly what it is. It's, it's not really any different in games than anything else. It's just talking to people. Uh, having conversations. Um, actually, there was a great episode um, uh, of um, the. Uh, there was a podcast where they were talking about the Anchor Steam Brewing uh, Union, and um, it really, it's the same as forming any other union. You basically talk to everyone in your studio, uh, get get a handle on, talk them through labor issues and what a union could bring, and then get them to buy into the idea of a union. Hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Um, you, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Do you think there are any unique barriers in the, the games industry at all to unionizing or to just, like, collective action of any sort? Um, it's hard It's hard to say. There's, there's in certainly industries where it's, I think it's harder. Um, games, uh, well, I, okay, so... One of the biggest barriers is that people have a lot of passion for games, and that gets used Mm -hmm. kind of as a cudgel against them. Um, And also, uh, this is less an issue for engineers, but more more of an issue for designers and artists. Um, There aren't a lot of transferable skills. Like, uh, a lot of people have really deep-seated fears about being blacklisted from the industry, whether or not it would happen. I, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, but uh, it's important to th- realize that if you're an experienced game designer, right, and you uh, are involved in a labor action and, like, whether or not it's a fear that would come true, um, if you were blacklisted, like, what are you going to do? You you make what you make, but, like, you can't go... Where are you going to go with your game design experience uh, outside of the game industry? Um, and so I think that's a fear that a lot of people have um, that restricts their ability to unionize, but I think all, that that's that's also the case in other unionization. I mean, like, we don't have, we're not, you know, we're not the West Virginia coal miners, we're not going to, you know, we're probably not going to have bombs dropped on us, hopefully. Um, but... I, uh, I would hope that. I'm yeah, not, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I won't laugh, because it could, I mean, you never know, but yeah, yeah it, hopefully it, not. <laughs> yeah, um, so again, it's it's like other other industries and other workers have gone through this, these exact same steps and have overcome these exact same obstacles. I think there's specific challenges that we'll have to overcome. Um, I mean, another one is the disparity of income, right? Like the you know, a QA tester might make one fifth mm-hmm. of what a programmer makes, um, and organizing those two 
people into the same union, um, getting those two people to have solidarity with each other can be hard. Um, uh, but again, that's a, that's something that other other industries have dealt with. But that, those are that's definitely a thing that the game industry will have to that we have to think about when organizing the game industry. Hmm. Is there a, like how you talked about who is considered a game dev earlier? Is there a social stratification uh, between like? Um, designers versus QA testers that is a barrier that you think? Absolutely. Um, oftentimes, uh, there's there's a large, <laughs> I think there's a large social and um, large social and pay. I mean, it's, it's not just social, it's also material um, uh, disparity between QA and, you know, traditional game devs like designers, artists, and programmers. Mm-hmm. Um, Oftentimes, like as an example, like QA teams won't be sat in the same area as the development team. So at some companies, uh, developers aren't even, or QA testers aren't even allowed to talk to developers directly. They have to go through someone else to talk to a developer. That's horrible. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, there was a great article on Kotaku recently uh, that I think Jason Jason Squire reported on, uh, the QA testers at Treyarch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, That talked about some of the conditions they had to go through. And, and again, I've experienced that to lesser and greater de- degrees as a QA tester in my in my past as well. Um, and that's something that, I mean, that's also going back to what the working conditions that people uh, are going through and what things that can cause them to want to unionize. Um, a lot of, There's been a lot of talk about crunch lately, but it's actually kind of a more complex issue just than crunch um, for a lot of reasons. Interesting. But, those kinds of social stratifications are something that uh, I think is a point that people feel like, certainly as a QA tester, makes your makes you feel like a lesser person when you are working in that role, um, and it's really un- really unfair. Hmm. Yeah, and it would be hard to be a QA tester and reach out to a designer like I think we should uh, unionize. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's really hard though. I think something that needs to um, QA testers do need to recognize their power, and that's a big part of the concerns about that social stratification. Um, QA testers are often treated kind of as like completely replaceable. Like we could fire someone and get someone else in that seat tomorrow. Um, you know, they're they're paid the lowest in the game industry, off lowest paid roles in the game industry. Like, uh, and that. Those conditions exist, but if a QA team stops working, a game production shuts shuts down. You like a, a game that's that needs a QA team to write up bugs on a on a project. Like without that QA team working, that game is not shipping. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And um, a big part of why, I mean, I can't. I don't you know. This is not to be too conspira- conspiratorial about it, but a big part of those social divisions could be preventing QA from realizing their power, which then, you know, limits their ability to organize around issues like pay and and those social conditions that make working in QA really frustrating sometimes. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And keeping people in economic struggle is a, a way to um, <laughs> keep them from realizing their power for sure. If you're Absolutely. wondering how you're going to, to eat that night. Um, and and to be fair, like not every studio has terrible conditions for QA. 
Um, but I think it's important that we ha that we have solidarity across all of all studios, um, and that even so, like one challenge. So. I'm not not to overly not, not to shill for anyone, but working at Blizzard <laughs> was really nice. Like actually working at Blizzard overall, um, and and the QA testers that I worked with at Blizzard often had really good conditions compared to QA testers and other at other companies. Um, but, so, but like I as a developer maybe had better working conditions than the QA testers, and it's important for me to have solidarity with them. And then for them, I think it's important for them to have solidarity with the testers at other companies that maybe aren't, don't have some of the advantages that they have. Mm -hmm. And there were still lots of issues at Blizzard um, and at every company, really uh, st stepping back to other, you know, other labor issues, game, game developers tend to be in very expensive parts of the country. And so even if a QA tester is making a decent amount of money in for a part of the country where living costs aren't as expensive as they are in places like, you know, Southern California and the Bay yeah. Area. Um, it's just, it's oftentimes, you know, you have to have three testers to a half, you know, I know when I was working as a tester, I had, I, I was in a very, a very shitty apartment uh, <laughs> paying um, 1300 a month in, in like 2005, making like nine an hour. Oh. And it was, it was like, it was miserable. Um, and that's just not a, that's not QA testers actually work really hard and and provide very valuable knowledge work and it's not that's not an, a moral condition for them to be in. Yeah. Um, did you actually live? Why don't you ask your wow question too? I, I'm interested in that and I wanna I wanna pepper this so like because I think there's so much to talk about in terms of I don't know there's so much to talk about in terms of uh, your experience in 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 the industry and then also the labor stuff like it's it's just. A million things to ask so please live uh, go ahead ask ask a wow question yeah i'm trying to uh, you know hopefully that this is more broad than just my very specific interest in wow <laughs> um overall about inheriting a um maybe a a feature of a game that you don't think is working well um so I'm thinking you started working on quest lines at the beginning of Mist of Pandaria. Um, and in Cataclysm, there, I think it started in Wrath that you had instanced questing, that there would be zoned questing. Um, yeah, there was like, it, a, there's, a, there's a phase system where you yeah. basically split, yeah, you get split up. And it seemed very frustrating in Cataclysm. I remember many people maybe not, thinking that it was working perfectly, but that was one of maybe the biggest improvements in questing in Mr. Pandaria. So what that is like to inherit something that you have to change, or just like interested in the phasing system at all. I think that the way that the dailies were, um, the daily questing for people who, <laughs> who are not WoW players, um, there's quests that you can complete every day that are repeatable quests. Um, and they went from kind of like the same, you do the same 15 quests every single day um, in some of the earlier expansions and they became a little bit more dynamic in later expansions. And I think that um, maybe Mist had like the, the largest jump in the improvement of, of dailies maybe? One of um, biggest, yeah. at least. So the, the phasing system is really interesting. Um, that's actually a really good example. So I can even, for people who aren't WoW fans, I can kind of bring it up even more broadly than WoW, which is the game design is all about like really tough choices. Mm. And so what the phasing system 
the phasing system has clear downsides, which is that um, essentially what fa all what phasing is is that based on your state in the uh, your sort of state in progression through the game, you get a different set, you have a sort of a different set of characters you interact with. And the upside to that is that you provide a reactivity. Like the way a single player game works where if you, you know, you killed a big NPC, you know, who's the, like the leader of this camp or whatever, then the camp is despawned and now that you have friendly NPCs spawn there, right? Like right. basic, basic RPG reactivity. Um, the problem is in an MMO, obviously, like there's one world, you can't you can't give players reactivity. You can't have two players in two different states in the same area seeing different NPCs uh, and being able to interact with those NPCs, right? Like if, if if I'm fighting something and it doesn't exist for you, that just doesn't work. So the the upside is reactivity. The downside is you separate your player base, um, and so uh, a lot of what the refinement. So a lot of a lot of and this is the, uh, a pattern that a lot of features go through on WoW and every other game, which is that you get a new feature, it has this really, really just like awesome upside, and you know that there are downsides, but you you go ham with it because the, the upsides are so cool. Mm. Um, and what you realize is that in practice, the downsides are more meaningful than you had realized in your head. And so as, in practice, you realize like, oh, okay, um, we need to be very selective about how we use this feature because we are putting players through a lot of pain. And in the cases where the reactivity is awesome, we made a good choice. In places where the reactivity is kind of minor, it's not worth it. Um, and so that's um, that's an example, I think, of the kinds of tough choices that that designers often have to make, which is basically any way you could do it could make a game. It's which way makes is the most successful execution of the game that you're trying to make. Um, and specifically with that, a lot of the question is how, what is the balance between telling a reactive story and making the world feel alive and making the world react to the player like they're the hero of, you know, of an RPG versus how much is this an MMO? How, how important is the continuity of the player, you know, how, mixing all the players together in a, in a big, that and seeing what happens, um, <laughs> having them punch each other in the face. Like it's, it's, there's a, the, there's a tension between those two things that an MMO wants to be. And the development of the phasing system over time, I think really was trying to play at the edges of how much of an MMO is, how much is World of Warcraft or Final Fantasy or whatever game it is, how much of it, it is a, story-driven reactive experience and how much of it is a massively multiplayer sandbox where everyone can, you know, play together and it's much more about the, the experience of interacting with other players. Mm. That makes sense. I think, like, the what I find interesting about that, too, is, and maybe this is a bit of a, a departure, but, like, it is interesting to think about the ways that the, like, game systems interact with each other um, in such like imbricated and, and connected ways um, and then like the fact that uh, the gaming culture is so reactionary at the same point when like when you see these systems work together there's I mean you know it's not perfect but like you can think about ways in, in which uh, you immediately start thinking about like oh actually like a lot of the systems that I look at are, are connected and, and you know that can improve your politics in some ways Um it, it's fascinating to hear you talk about these um, 
these connected systems and unintended consequences and stuff like that. And then think about like, well, how does that actually connect to something like uh, politics where like, yeah, actually, you know, that happens a lot where there's, where there's unintended consequences and uh, the things one does actually like cause someone else to be poor uh, outside of their own, um, you know, it's, it's not their fault. It's just something that ended up happening. Actually, that, that brings a really good thing to mind. So, preface this with I have like I didn't work on Diablo three. I have no internal knowledge. I have no special Blizzard knowledge about Diablo three. This is just a thing that the community saw happen too, um, which was the deal with the auction house um, when okay. the game when the yeah. Uh, so not the real money auction house specifically, but just the. Um, so I'll back up for the problem. And it, it is what it's interesting to me is that it's an example of a real-world economic problem happening in the microcosm of a game. So Diablo 3, um, you could find items and you could trade them freely. Uh, and you could also put them up on, the auction ha- on an auction house and sell them for gold or for real money. Um, the, uh, an issue became that <laughs> because... Items. So there wasn't like WoW has this idea of soul binding, which is when you equip an item, it becomes like untradeable. So when you equip equipping an item, removes it from the economy. Mm-hmm. Diablo Diablo three didn't have that. So what happened over time is that um, the overall, if you can think of sort of economically what's happening, tons of items are being generated. And the overall quality, like the average quality of items is slowly going up over time because um, people, you know, let's say there's a 1% chance to generate a great item, right? In the first day, if if 100 items are generated, you get one of them. And then after 100 days, you probably have 100 of them. And so the overall quality of gear slowly went up over time. But because gear wasn't being removed from the economy, that, that continued to happen. And so gear that you would find was essentially worthless. Uh, oh, if, okay. Like gear that was good on week one became worthless by week 100 because you could go <laughs> into the auction house because, because the, quali- the average quality level of gear had gone up so much. Um, the, the exchange rate is gold. And so for 100 gold, you might get an item of let's say, just in relative power levels, like if something was 100 power in week one, that same amount of gold would buy you 1,000 power in week 10. And right. so and so, what happened is that actually items became really worthless. This was around like patch 1.03. And so what players would do is just get gold. Like items would devalue so quickly that, um, that gold... Uh, became the only thing that was worth collecting. So you'd actually just go through and like break chests. That was the th- you'd like break boxes. You'd ignore all the <laughs> monsters. You just go through and like smash boxes and try and get gold. Sounds like a fun game. Yeah, exactly. And and so all of like innocent what what was happening was a deflationary spiral. Essentially, people realize it's a, like very similar to what happened in the Great Depression, where people realize that oh my money isn't gonna be my money is gonna be worth uh, way more tomorrow than it is now. Um, Essentially, like the value of my money will increase because, uh, because because of since prices are going down, the value of my money goes up over time. Right, and so people don't want to buy things because they could buy more tomorrow than what they were getting today, and ultimately it created a situation where the game was really on, really just incredibly unfun, um, and a lot of the uh, reaction to that was to, to introduce impediments to trading. Which is essentially what the, the I mean, their, their solution Effectively ultimately what was, happened in, in the Great Depression. <laughs> exactly. Um, 
so the solution was to remove the auction house. Um, and what's interesting is that um, there wasn't a lot of, I mean, in reality, if you think about it, the gold auction house was actually more damaging to the game overall just because so many more people used it. Um, and it, it, it modified player behavior more. Mm. Um, like the gold, I mean, like I, I, I mean, I played for quite a while and never used the gold, the real money auction house. Um, but really it was the ability for people to trade and the lack of sinks that, that caused those problems. And so there's an interesting counterexample with um, WoW tokens, which I don't know if, if you're familiar with, but basically you can buy a month of WoW game time for gold. Oh. Yeah. Is that still a thing you can do? Yes, it is still okay. a thing you can do in WoW. Um, mm -hmm. And, and it uh, goes in two directions. So you can buy, so you can buy, I think it's, I don't, it's like... 20 bucks for a token and subs are, you know, so a sub is $15 for a month. So it's, you know, there's some extra profit built in there or not profit, but um, it's like a transaction cost. Um, and uh, what happens is with WoW tokens, you, all you do is you just say, I want to buy a WoW token for gold and there's a current market price and it matches you the current market price is not set. Like, it's not a free market at all. It's, there is a one current market price for WoW tokens that is decide, that is ruled on, like, Blizzard says, this is the current market price for tokens. And there is some element of supply and demand in there. Like, there's, and there's websites where you can go and look at the current price of WoW tokens and see how it fluctuates with time and things. But um, it's not a totally free market like... Um, like a, you know, an auction house would be, right. um, and I think that that choice is very interesting when you look at the politics of games and look at MMOs sort of as microcosms of societies and what kinds of world we want. Like in an MMO, you can sort of create the kind of world you want to live in as an experiment. And I think it's just interesting to see how um, oftentimes the worlds that we make in games are much more. We're much. We want to design systems much more we we rely a lot less on freedom and ideas of the free market in games because when we encounter the side effects of those systems in games we find them so onerous and yeah. awful yeah no that that makes sense to me and like it it i guess the 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 thing that people think is well you know that's in a game and a game is like a game is fake uh, effectively and like it's not it's not real it's not like that's not how life works um, and you you kind of you just kind of say, well, you know, people who have any sort of problem in, in real life, they you know, blaming blaming a kind of uh, systemic problem like that is is misunderstanding how the world works. It's it's you know, uh, put a different way, I guess, if they're not saying it that way, um, the uh, the 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 marketplace is a uh, a perfectible system, whereas a video game is is not. Like a video game is is flawed; it's made by people, whereas the market is a is sort of a perfect uh, a, a perfect mix of, of pure <laughs> rationality. Um, and and like it maybe that's what's happening there, but it's just kind of like especially in MMOs. I'm surprised that politics aren't a little more left. Uh, maybe that's naive of me, but like certainly seems like they ought to be. I think, I mean, it depends on the MMO, really, and I think it's mm. it's a question of... Um, I, I don't think MMOs are more right... I don't think the audience of MMOs is more right-wing than any other a avenue of gaming. Um, 
And certainly, like, I think part of this is a lot of the social things that Final Fantasy XIV does, but they have a relatively more left-wing audience in my experience. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's the only MMO where you can get gay married, so, I mean, that's probably <laughs> not, like, you can, they... I don't know, I've seen a lot of stuff in, uh, in on Moonguard. I think that I've... I've seen some gay marriages before. Well, sorry, it's the only one where it's it's literally supported by the gay mechanics. <laughs> <laughs> and and I mean, there's 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 been a lot of tension actually. Um, I mean, there was the whole uh, there was an incident a while back. This was before I worked at Blizzard, where there was a guild recruiting, like an LGBTQ guild recruiting, and uh, Blizzard was like unsure how to deal with it, and basically like shut like prevented them from recruiting because they're like, well, it's, it's, they just like, it, it was impossible for them to process, I think, and to some extent, and they eventually reversed that decision, but I think that, um, and mm. yeah, it, I, I, I should find a link to the story about it or something for, for the, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I think probably on Proudmore, I think Proudmore is kind of considered one of the more LGBT friendly, like servers. And that's interesting to me that there's like whole servers that people know there's going to be um, more yeah. people in their community on. I, well, and I think that's really important. Um, I think MMOs, especially as the, like one of the most social kinds of games, like it's really important to feel safe around other players. Um, and I think that's actually a big challenge of, um, of MMO in MMOs. Like uh, even back when, in like the olden days of wow, Baron's chat uh, Barons was like this huge zone that you spent way too much time in if you were playing Horde and early WoW, and there was just like a chat room for the whole zone, and it devolved very quickly into just awful, like. What's well, the Mordow problem? It's it's yeah, what's happening yeah. in Mordow right now, where they and and they're well, saying to, well the the to a lesser extent, <laughs> some of those Mordow screenshots are horrifying, but yeah. Oh yeah, no no yes, no. I mean yes, like yes, yeah. Yes. I don't I don't mean to suggest yeah sure. I mean like it's the <laughs> yeah. Mordow thing of it just being a general chat and that that yes. defaulting. Sorry, yes. I don't I don't mean to suggest that WoW was like that. That's a that's a very specific thing. Right yes, now. yeah yeah. I mean it's yeah. So, um, but yeah, I think. I mean, and on the other hand, like there is a lot of. Um, like, there is an understanding, especially on the, on the more sandboxy MMOs, that MMOs kind of are like experiments in different kinds of politics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a lot of them tend to be, for various reasons, like very. Um, a lot of it's probably because also the tech industry tends to be very libertarian. Like Eve Online mm. is is very much like Libertopia. Oh yeah, um, Eve Online and, for sure. Um, and I think that's that's probably a big part of why systems because obviously like a system designer when they're setting up the systems for their game they insert their bias into the design of the systems okay. and off and, and that that is can be completely unconscious but um what you reward through the game mechanics often determines the behaviors that players take i mean that's absolutely a lesson that um, i learned to a huge degree um on all the games i made which is that player behavior like people don't People will do what the game, what they think the game wants them to do and hate it before they will do, even if they could do the thing that they will have fun doing, if they feel like the game will reward them for doing a thing that they hate. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, if people feel (laughs) like, (laughs) people will do a shitty, boring thing uh, if the game gives them, you know, gives them carrots for it before they'll, even if they don't really need to, before they'll do a thing that's actually more fun. And that's a very... um, 
important lesson about how our role as system designers shapes behavior. And that, and then if you apply that to politics, you can imagine how like society <laughs> then shapes behavior. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, that totally makes sense. Um, so let me ask you this. Uh, I actually lost track of who was asking the question. Liv, what, am, I, am I asking a, too many questions? Is this is this your turn? I forget. I don't know. You okay, can ask cool. your question. If no, if no one question. knows, then it's fine. <laughs> um, but uh, so my question is uh, how, like, this is something that I think about a lot, and, and maybe you have to if you are sort of curious about, um, if you're curious at all about... Uh, um, uh, left leftism in video games. What I mean, how would you make a left leaning video game? Like, what would it look like to you? I think. So, I think a lot of what it is about is so. There's there's a, a lot of different ways to approach that. One is just a left leaning narrative, and I think there's been games that have had at least somewhat more left leaning narratives. Like, there's some games that have been anti imperialist um, to some extent. Um, a lot of games that have featured, you know, like, uh, or not a lot, but there's at least been some games where it's featured, like, an invading empire and a native population fighting back against them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, that is a theme, that's an anti-imperialist theme in a game. But stepping back to mechanics, um, I think a lot of what we have to think about are how can, like, cooperative mechanics are an example of something where is a game about building something alongside other people. That's often, that's kind of a, um, imagining a world where people can work together uh, to build something cooperatively as opposed to competitively, that might be a left, that might be a left-leaning mechanical system, right? Mm, sure. Um, or, uh, um, also, I mean, a lot of it is how you code, like, there, you can look at a game like Civilization and like what they code uh, what meaning they code into their political alignments, right? Like, if you take communism, you get these benefits and these drawbacks. <laughs> right. A lot of it, a lot of it is like thinking about looking about what biases you're putting into those uh, into those mechanical effects. Um, but I think I really do think that thinking about how can games act as a how can game mechanics act to counteract the sort of dominant narrative of, you know, acquisition and conquest and um, uh, not necessarily violence because there's also like liber there's there's ways to make games that are violent and liberating, but um, I think the 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 assumption that it goes into so many games of that game mechanics must be about acquisition and um, Conquest is something is that's the first step is sort of moving beyond those mechanics to make something that's a little bit more um, left left leaning. Cool. Um, Liv, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know if you had a follow up there, Jeff. No, uh, I thought I did, and then I th and then I realized like actually it's just another question. So. <laughs> yeah, I was curious because we have talked about how um, uh, games media. Uh, has been a, a lot unethical. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I hope it's I hope it's not a surprise. We're big time gamer gators here. I'm trying to yeah. the, the, many of the personalities in <laughs> um, in the gaming sphere are uh, reactionary. Uh, that's mm -hmm. 
but you you are a fan of MMOs. You've worked on an MMO. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe at like the beginning of MMOs, or at least at the beginning of WoW, like so much of what was cool about the game was just like seeing another player online, like you know, just like the appeal yeah. of any multiplayer game. And then whenever you started uh, Molten Core, it was cool to just be hitting the same giant guy that everyone else was hitting. Um, yeah. But it wasn't it wasn't maybe the most cooperation, but now it functions at a level and probably many other MMOs do too, that require so much on reliance on other people and cooperation and uh, seems to be like a, a little leftist group, you know, like that it, it requires this collective. Why do you think that we don't see more people um, embracing those ideals past the point of uh, that, that raid wipe? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, actually, th- this brings me back to another thing you were mentioning about um, that level of cooperation. Actually, a, an interesting thing that's happened over time in the hardcore rating community is that um, if you remember, I, I don't know if you had to deal with these systems back when you were rating in WoW, people used to use these uh, things called DKP systems mm-hmm. where like, it was this insane... I've used um, basically every loot system. <laughs> yeah. So it's this ins- it's basically this insane like way to create a market for items when they drop where like every time an item drops everyone gets points and then you can like spend points to buy an item and it like creates this market these it's it's this incredibly complex system that people just for whatever reason assumed was the right way to distribute items early on in WoW's history. Um, what has happened over time in the hardcore uh, rating scene is as things have gone one of two ways either they go to essentially like central planning which is master looter where they form a loot council and they just sort of like okay we're going to pre-figure out where everything's going to go there's not really any you know it's it's essentially central planning mm-hmm. um for loot <laughs> uh or so, they so just the go, stalinist perspective exactly yeah. or they basically just go full anarchy and just say like just roll on what you roll on it if it's an upgrade if it's good for you, like, we'll just, you know, eventually over time, everyone will get upgrades. They're just sort of like a complete, like, it's it's not, it's not, there's not an assumption that there needs to be a market to regulate, um, regulate people's behavior. It's more just like, yeah, people will, don't be an asshole, don't roll on stuff that you don't need, and everyone will eventually get what they need. Um, which is, I think it's a very interesting to see how even hardcore groups have gone to those two um those two systems uh, over time. I mean, there, I'm sure there's still people that use the super complicated DKP systems. It's just, I, I've seen a lot of groups move from the more like market-based ones to these more left ones. As to why people don't take that outside of games, um, I mean, I think a lot of it is is social conditioning, right? Like, games are still games. They're still, you know, there's still a perception that they're not the real world. Right. Um, and everything and we're just so conditioned to competition and and acquisition and um those like we it it takes a real revelation i think to step back and think like what if society wasn't organized around acquisition what if society wasn't organized around competition but cooperating to try and get everyone resources that they needed um i certainly think that there's there's an avenue to explore there of how do we take the cooperative experience that people have playing games and turn it into a social taking that experience outside of the MMO space. No, that totally makes sense to me too. I, and like even, even knowing nothing about, uh, about MMOs like that, it it seems to make sense to me to imagine 
uh, loot becoming the the catalyst or maybe the the sort of like uh, pivot point for like any sort of political stuff oh, making its way in. Yeah, ex- legendaries. Whenever you had to um, figure out who the one person in your guild was that was going to get the legendary weapon, that was very political. <laughs> <laughs> Which they've kind of gone away from that. I don't know. I don't even remember the last time it was. It was that kind of. I don't. I think it's always uh, self loot now. Correct? Like a personal um, loot. Yeah, I believe that's. I believe that's the current state that, that the game's in. Yeah, um, though. There's there there's also trading rules like there's there's essentially a system where um, uh, you can if you loot an item and it's not an upgrade for you you can trade it to someone else who's mm. who was also in the group when you got it um, a big part of that is actually encouraging generosity which is something that's really important like that's something that a lot of MMOs lose when they just have that pure like you can't trade loot at all. Um, mm. The ability for someone to be generous and give something to someone else is is actually, I think, a really important social. It's like very important social glue for a for an online game, and so that's one reason why that system exists. I think. Yeah. Totally makes sense. Um, yeah. So I've kept you for an hour now. I, I want to. I, I, we probably should should cut it off, but I wanted to ask you if you would come back uh, for for a patron episode where I just ask you a bunch of questions about funny stories and interesting experiences you've had in your time in the games industry. Would you be up for that? Obviously breaking no agreements or whatever you're... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. sure. Cool. Um, well, let me get people a taste then. Um, you said that a... Uh, you said in your email a couple of funny stories you had while while QA testing um, or while working at Obsidian or working at... Listen, you, you've been all over the place. Um, there was one where you said that <laughs> A uh, a car almost uh, hit the QA um, floor. Unless I'm misremembering the email. No, uh, that's that's correct. Okay, um, it sounds like it sounds so crazy that I assumed I was misremembering. So, can you tell that story? So, um, Obsidian used to be uh, in a building in Santa Ana, um, which was uh, it was it was this little like super rundown. Um, uh, kind of business park. Um, this was when Obsidian was like really young, really scrappy, trying to save money where they could. And so this place was not great. Um, they've okay. moved to a much ni- they've moved to a much nicer place now. But um, there's actually an homage to that building in Fallout New Vegas um, <laughs> that has like a car slammed into it and everything. So um, incredible. So there's a one of the big uh, freeways in Orange County, the 55, run ran right alongside that building, and there was a chain link fence between the building and the freeway, and so we like we're working in the QA pit, and then one day we just hear this loud like explosion from outside, uh, and we go outside, and there is like a car had run over the freeway, slammed into a tree like directly outside the QA pit. <laughs> um, <laughs> And yeah, it was just like it was like one of those things where like yeah, if that tree hadn't been there, like we probably would have had like three dead QA testers. So that was that was that was a scary and um, that's amazing. And interest, yeah, interesting experience. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, uh, but definitely uh, check out. Um, I, I don't remember the name of the building offhand, but then if you look on the Fallout wiki, you can find that one of the buildings in New Vegas that's a tribute to the original Obsidian. Uh, a, a office building. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and can I ask for your really? Is there a way to do a really brief version? You said it might be. It might actually be good for Obsidian if it was if it was purchased. Uh, what is what is your thought on that? 
Um, so this is <laughs> the. Br- I'll try and keep it brief. Um, Sorry, I know it's just like the, I'm, the, I'm. I'm. I'm forcing you into some into a tough one here, but it's, no, it's, it's an interesting it's to- thought. It's totally fine. Um, so obviously, there's positives and negatives to companies being purchased by other companies. Um, one of the ch- big challenges. Uh, there's a model of development that has kind of gone away now that publishers like EA used to make like maybe 50 games in a year and now they make like five. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they used to do was contract out with developers to do um, what's called work for hire, where um, the publisher is essentially paying a developer to make a game. Right. Um, and then maybe there's a royalty structure there. Or maybe there isn't. But um, the uh, there were a lot of problems with that mode of development. Um, among various ones is like publishers will give preference to their internally developed titles over their externally developed titles. Usually there's like a person at a publisher who's in charge of um, your third party project and their main worry is keeping the project from going out of budget. Okay. So that if a game needs more time, like there's a person whose personal incentive is to not give it that time that it needs to be a successful game. Even if it means hurting the company as a whole, like it, <laughs> there's a lot, there's just a lot of problems with that model. Um, that model has started to sort of both at the same time. That model, I think, didn't work out great for Obsidian, um, which is why I was super happy to see them do the Kickstarter thing. Um, yeah. That was something that I, I had been urging them to do for a while before I left, um, it, which is awesome. Like building a really, getting essentially having a fan base that's able to fund them is awesome. I think Microsoft. It, it seems like Microsoft is going more in the direction, hopefully, of um, acquiring studios, giving them resources, and hoping they make cool games for that are for Windows and Xbox. I think sounds sounds like a reasonable plan. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 kind of what Sony does too, like except for the they have internal studios, they don't usually acquire stuff, but they they've done they've like given now like Hideo Kojima a bunch of, you know, they've given Kojima Productions a bunch of money to make a game and they kind of just like let that happen and let that be something that attracts people to PlayStation. Um, and I think that model for Obsidian could be really good. Obviously, there's also ways it could be bad. Yeah. But um, I think that that level of stability... Um, Obsidian had a lot of... Um, a lot of... Uh, a lot to overcome to make good games. And so there's a, that's a context that you constantly have to keep in the back of your mind, which is that they're working in this system that is very... Um, hostile to them being able to make a good game. Um, and uh, I think being free of that system is a huge opportunity for them. So cool. obviously there, it could, it could suck, but it might be good. <laughs> I love it. I love, I love yeah. hearing that. Okay, great. Um, Liv, do you want to do the last question? It can be yours. Oh, wow. This is just a, a final, very quick question. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Have you have you seen the Warcraft movie? And if so, I'm just if you have seen it, I'm assuming you like it because upon last Google search, there was no negative criticism of it. Yeah, um, yeah. What what did you what did you like about it? Um. Well. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh. What can I, it's, it, it, <laughs> What can one say? What can one say? Um, no, I, I mean, I think it's a it's a hard movie to make. Like, I have uh, a lot of. Um, I actually, like, I really like. Um, shit, what's his name? Duncan Jones. Duncan Jones. Yeah. Um, I think like 
it's a hard, it's a very hard movie to make, and I think that um, part of the part of the issue with it is that um, it bit off a lot, mm-hmm. uh, and I think probably a smaller story would have been more effective. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> there was a lot going on, so li- the 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 I don't know. Um, if you know this inside joke of, 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 of not inside joke, but uh, but the sort of like recurring uh, theme, uh, Liv had me watch the uh, the Warcraft movie. Um, oh yeah, having never like known anything about War. I mean, like I, you know, going in blind. Um, and you still know nothing about Warcraft after seeing the movie. Uh, no, I learned a lot. Um, <laughs> it, I mean, it truly, it truly was very, very difficult to follow uh, for, especially for someone who had no idea what they were looking at. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, complicated story is is certainly uh, one way of putting I, it. Yeah. I, I think so. I think the the issue, a lot of the issue there is that, and this is an issue with a lot of video game movies. Um, well, either they're trying to adapt a like the Doom movie, like that just shouldn't be a movie, <laughs> um, or maybe it should, but not the way they did it. Um, but like, uh, like you're trying to ad- adapt like a 60 hour game into a two hour movie. Right. And it's, it's just insane. And I know there's a lot of fan pressure on any, like, like people will be mad <laughs> if you leave out a thing that mm-hmm. they want. And I know there's a lot of pressure to try and cram as much. I mean, to be fair, like I'm not saying that like Warcraft is as good as all the comic book movies or whatever. Um, but it is also a problem in a lot of the comic book movies where there's just like so many characters, so much shit going on. Right. It can be extremely hard to follow. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, it is definitely a challenge for any movie that's trying to trying win to people bring, over, win people over and trying to like keep a fan base who has played, you know, 500 hours of games in this setting happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally fair. I was at the movies this weekend, and I got to see the Angry Birds 2 trailer, and just watching that, knowing the whole time I will never see Illidan on screen. Yeah. But those are the kind of movies that will adapt. Um, The one where you can tell an original story just in a world where people wouldn't really want an original story in the Warcraft world. They want the stories they know. They want to see the stories that they know. Mm. Yeah. I think think actually, like... um, a more successful version of what they're trying to do, like, of what... I mean, Blizzard's internally made... Like, the stuff they made for Overwatch and a lot mm-hmm. of the stuff that they're, they've done for WoW um, that wasn't the Warcraft movie, but is, like, the internally made movies have actually done a better job at sort of what they're trying to do with that, um, sort of expanding the world in an interesting way. Yeah, well, they've historically just had amazing cinematics. The, yeah. the, the WoW cinematic team is amazing. Yeah, they're super, they're super good. But. Yeah, I, I actually—that's the one thing I do get about WoW because I watched—I watched the Battle of Azeroth uh, trailer and I, I totally understood why it would be fun to play. Yeah, <laughs> like, I got it. I was like, oh, I get mm-hmm. this. This is this. This would be cool. Yeah. Um, well, I, d- thank you so much for coming on. I, this has been great. Uh, is there anything that you feel like you want to say that you didn't get a chance to say? Um, anything? Anything that you'd like to uh, to get? On the record, uh, before 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 your uh, your inevitable bonus episode, where I where I ask you all the times you were almost hit by a car. Um, um let me. Uh, 
check out Game Workers Unite. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about Game yeah, Workers we Unite, have, please. Oh, we, we've had um, we've had a couple people on the show before from from GWU. Um, it is a okay, really awesome. it is a really really good uh, organization. But I want to hear you talk about it a little bit. I, we probably um, skimmed over that. Uh, basically, it's I mean again, uh, we're an organization made up of game workers, students, um, fans. Uh, people who want to see the industry organized for better working conditions, um, you can go to the website, uh, gameworkersunite.org. Um, there's also a, uh, we have our Twitter, um, at gameworkersunite. Um, and then uh, if you're interested, if you're in Orange County or you're interested, uh, we have, uh, I'm the chapter coordinator at GWU Orange County on Twitter. Um, and if you're a game worker or you're just interested, get involved, send us a DM, send us mail. Um, we can use all the help we can get, um, and it's something that I think will help make games a lot better, uh, both to make and uh, actually will make them better to play in the long run. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, wonderful. Thank you so much for being on. This has been a real treat, actually, and there's still a million things I wish I could ask you, so uh, keep an eye out for that bonus episode coming out at some point when I... Uh, I, I basically just pester Nathaniel until uh, he hangs up the phone. Um, uh, where can people find your work, uh, Nathaniel? Where, uh, where? Obviously on Twitter, all over. Where, where, where are you at? So um, I'm on on Twitter at Peter the Dagger. Um, I have a blog that I haven't updated in like forever, so I need to get back on that. Um, but yeah, you can you can find me on Twitter, and um, I'll be announcing anything that I that I do there. Okay, great, excellent. Uh, go follow him. Good follow. Um, and get get back on your blog game. Yeah, I I I um, actually uh, some of the I wrote a raid review of one of the Final Fantasy fourteen raid encounters that a lot of the fourteen community enjoyed. And I actually got to meet the game director of fourteen um, separately from that. But uh, it, That's I like cool. to yeah I like to um, I really like when like two like theoretically competitive things are good friends. So I wanted to be like. The WoW guy that that compliments <laughs> Final Fantasy fourteen all the time. <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's like um, you're you're basically the the uh, the the olive leaf between the the WoW factions. Like yes, be- yeah, yeah. Because of you, Romeo and Juliet uh, of MMOs can be married. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, beautiful. <laughs> well, thank you again, uh, and uh, yeah, please come back soon. This was wonderful. Awesome, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Absolutely.